All right. So tonight we are looking at Christianity and culture. It's a look back. So it's a kind of a historical perspective on not only, I mean, because the cultural mandate, it's been around since the beginning. Every Christian has been called to that. And what we're going to see is we're going to look back and see how Christians truly have gone and changed the culture in spite of what they were being confronted with. Um, and so I think, I think sometimes we can get caught up in the, just go share the gospel and everything's going to be okay, right? And we do share the gospel. People get saved. Amen. That's the minimum of what we should be doing. It's, you know, engaging the culture is never going to be less than sharing the gospel, but it's always called to be more than sharing the gospel. The gospel is the beginning, and then we begin to work out our faith from there. And again, so this is, we're going to look and see where Christians have done that in the past. Again, some of this may be old news to you, but um, anyway, so we're going to go ahead and get this started. And so, little quiz, right? And this is the redacted part, right? Who said it? Right? The Jesus cult is evil. It poisons our culture by weakening our resolve to fulfill our destiny. Who said it? You didn't. I was like, I didn't. I ain't never said it. Right? I mean, literally, man, it was the Romans' leadership back in the you know second and third century, right, where they saw the early Roman officials. Man, they said these things because the Christians were believed to be bringing about the decline of the Roman Empire. And so they were just called a cult. And here's the crazy thing is, is even back in those days, Christians were called atheists. They were called atheists because they didn't serve these many gods like what you would find in the Roman culture. And the first time I read that, I thought, that must be a typo or something. But sure enough, they were called atheists because they would only serve the one God. And so this was things that, like I said, the Roman government officials would say um, about the Christians. Okay. So then the reason why the ancient world was so pure, light, and serene was that it knew nothing of the two great scourges, the pox and Christianity. Yeah, but man, it's the pox in Christianity that's keeping that from happening. Who said it? Adolf Hitler. And he would know about light and serenity, right? No, he would. We would be 1,500 years ahead if it hadn't been for the church dragging science back by its coattails and burning our best minds at the stake. Right, but that's not accurate because during the age of enlightenment, all of the great scientists were. Oh, Bart! Oh, Bart! Oh, Bart! There you go, bringing facts to the table. That's right, <laughs> Catherine Faringer, and she's uh, she was an, she she was an atheist, um, and she was really the founder of the Freedom from Religion Foundation. And so she worked, raised in an Episcopal family, a uh, military person, and uh, clearly was, a, was an atheist. Again, I say she was an atheist because she's passed away some time ago, so she's not an atheist anymore. Um, but so anyway, so there's thoughts like that that are out there. And um, 
And people think like that, and people think like that today. And so we just want to bring some truth to the table that allows us to go out and have discussions to see the good that Christianity has brought to the table and has brought to the cultures. All right, and so... um, Oh, this one here is, I forgot to redact that one out, but it's I'm against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. And of course, that was Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, he's a guy over in England. Okay, so that one tells you one thing, but he's uh, the atheist that wrote uh, The God Delusion and um, Biological Evolutionist and... He's, he's one of the atheists I like to pick on. He just makes it easy just because he says this incredibly dumb thing. For a smart guy, I mean, he's brilliant. He just says some dumb stuff, and it's just easy to pick on him um, from that point. And then we have, uh, in Christianity, neither morality nor religion come into contact with reality at any point. In Christianity, neither morality nor religion come into contact with reality at any point. And you'll find this one really humorous, Friedrich Nietzsche. And that one makes me chuckle, too, because if you know anything about Nietzsche's life, I mean, the guy was just morally bankrupt. I mean, addictions, sexual diseases. I mean, he drove. I mean, he, was, he died. He was literally crazy. Um, and so I just found it interesting that Nietzsche would, would bring that comment to the table. But uh, so anyway, so what good is Christianity, right? And that's the question. What good is Christianity? This is what we're going to talk about tonight, Right. Christianity may be similar, right? Hang on a second, right? Christianity often gets put in the religious grouping. And so like if we were to go back to Dawkins' quote there, and he's just talking about religion, right? He throws them all into the same pot. And when he talks about religion, mostly he's talking about Christianity, but he'll, he'll tip his hat to some of the other ones. But he just throws them all in the same pot like they're all basically the same. All religions are basically the same. Uh, And I've heard people say that, and we've had discussions about that, but nothing could be further from the truth, right? Christianity, it may be similar to other beliefs in the incidentals, but it's vastly different when it comes to the fundamentals. It's vastly different when it comes to the fundamentals, the things that really separate Christianity from all other belief systems. And it's literally, I mean, we can pick one, and it's called salvation, It's called salvation, right? Only in Christianity do we get salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. And again, you'll find some people say, oh yeah, Jesus, if Jesus works for you, that's good. That's good, right? He's just one way. That's not what Christianity says. Christianity says he's the way, right? And it's by grace through faith. All other belief systems, it's through works, You have to work your way to heaven in some way, shape, or form. That is a vast distinction between Christianity and other beliefs, right? So we must not throw it all in the same pot. Again, we can talk about love. We can talk about justice, and we've got that in other religions. Now, we've got to work through definitions on those. But nonetheless, we can get those things, and we can bring them together. But when it comes to salvation and who God is, it's vastly different. So where Christianity does align with other beliefs is here. What you believe will affect what you do. What you believe will affect what you do. 
And again, we can sit there and say, we believe a lot of things about the Christian faith, but if we don't live it out, we don't really believe those things about the Christian faith. We don't really believe those things. Right? Wrong beliefs will lead to wrong actions. Right beliefs lead to right actions. But man, this opens up a whole, man, just a buzzsaw of, well, what's right and what's wrong? How do we determine what's right? How do we determine what's wrong? And then that becomes the discussion point. Well, this is how we do it. What you think about God is the most important thing you think. That will determine what you believe to be right and wrong. What you really believe about God will determine what you really think is right and what you really think is wrong. Because if we have a wrong belief about God, we're going to come up with the wrong beliefs about right and wrong because God becomes that standard. So, so some people may say that what you believe does not matter. Right? Your actions are the only things that matter. How would you respond to that? What you believe doesn't matter. It's what you do that matters. How would you respond? I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because show me somebody that, oh, yeah, I don't believe this is true, but this is what I do. We just, we just don't. Yeah, I'm, that, that's it. It's because it's the right thing. Yeah. Kevin, you were going to say something? Or? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can get back to how did you come up with that belief? Right? And so, again, it's just a way to have a conversation, it's a way to ask questions, it's a way to continue the conversation on as opposed to just thinking that they're a nut job and you move on, right? We, we've done nothing to further the conversation. Bob? Earlier you said, you know, in many times in telling the gospel, this is what I came across. Well, I'm glad you promised you. I'm glad you just worked for me. I'm glad you found out. Uh-huh. I'm glad that worked for me. So in my context, in the experience that I had, it's a terrible way of saying, this was for you. I'm glad you promised. I got my thing, you know, especially when I talk to Yeah. So I don't know. Are you going and there because you know I'll come around to on a second round in the future to take another shot from different angles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, so it's hey, if that works for you, that's great. What question would you ask from that statement? If that works for you, that's great. What question would you ask? I'm sorry. Does it really work? What is it that works? What, the work, what works for you? Tell me. I, I, I would love to hear what works for you. And then how do we know that that works for you? Once we find out, oh, well, you know, praying to leprechauns works for me. Well, how do you know that works for you? You know, and you, can, you begin to walk through those things. So your life is really good. And just begin to ask questions, not as much, right? We, we want them to defend their 
worldview. Right? Because we can get into, well, it works for me, and, you know, well, it doesn't work for me. You know, then you get that, you, you don't accomplish anything. But start asking questions, tactics, right? So we can begin to move them from just a cliche. Because, man, people will live in sound bites and cliches, and you never get challenged on what you believe, think, or do. But by asking questions, we begin to challenge those cliches to make them think deeper about that. Right? Because, look, I, I don't know many people that don't have some brokenness in their life, in their past. This is crazy. Right? My, I'll just share this one story with you. It's, we, when I was probably in the first or second grade, we lived over in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I had two older brothers and an older sister. And um, I was one of those, just a sweet kid, just gentle, kind I was just all of that stuff, right? But I always wanted to follow my brothers everywhere they went. And so my brother, he texts me. He's out traveling around, and he was coming back home. And this was just a week or so ago. And he was wanting the address to this house where we lived. And I knew the address, which blew me away then anyway. I mean, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. But anyway, so I sent him the address. And so he sends me the picture of the house we used to live in when we were just all kids. And I showed, I showed I said, baby cakes. Look, I said, you see that tree? And there's a tree in the front yard. I said, you see that tree there? He goes, yeah. And I said, there's a lot of trauma wrapped up in that. Right? One day, right, I wanted to follow my brothers. They tied me to this tree. And they paid some little kid in the neighborhood 50 cents. That's before inflation kicked in. 50 cents. And they said, every time he moves, you spray him down with this hose. Man, trauma, trauma. I was telling somebody that today. They said, you should go cut that tree down. I said, you know what? That would make me feel better. Right? What we believe. And there's, everybody's got trauma. Everybody's got some kind of brokenness in their life. Let's move them beyond the cliches by asking questions to move them into that. Well, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Let's have those discussions. Um, so anyway, so we talked about that. Let's see. In Christianity, belief precedes practice. Belief precedes practice in Christianity. What you believe really matters. And what you believe, we can know by what we do. By what we do. All right? Luke 10, 27, it says, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Right? The great commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. Man, our love for God will determine how and if we love our neighbor. Man, if we don't love God... We are not going to love our neighbor. Right? Our very breath of life is in God's hands. Our neighbor has very little to do with us other than their dog comes over and gets in my yard or something. Right? How we love God will determine how we love our neighbor. And if we don't love God, we're not going to love our neighbor. Belief precedes practice. Matthew 23, 27. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. 
look, we know the story of the Pharisees. Man, they did all kinds of acts that they believed to be righteous acts. They thought that made them good and holy, but it did not because they did not think rightly about God. They did not think rightly about God. And so the acts that they did were not done to bring glory to God, but it was to bring glory to self, which clearly are not righteous acts. What they said they believed didn't align with how they lived. Right? Man, they were all about the law. They didn't even live according to the law. And they didn't treat those around them according to the law. Belief precedes actions. All right, so we got this word orthodoxy, which means sound doctrine. Orthodoxy is sound doctrine. And that's what we believe. Or hopefully it is what we believe. And then we go to orthopraxy, which is sound practice. Orthodoxy. Orthopraxy, without the doxy, you can't do the praxy, right? Isn't that cute? No? I tried, okay. <laughs> I tried. But what we do or what we believe, our sound doctrine, will lead into what we do, sound practice. We cannot escape that, right? So followers of Christ, living out their faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, have transformed the world. Us, as followers of Christ, living out our faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to transform the world. And again, whether we're talking the whole world or our little world where we have our sphere of influence, because the Holy Spirit of God lives in us, we have the power to do that. We have the power to do that. Right? Again, I've talked, opened up with this. It's not just with the gospel, but by filling our role in the cultural mandate. By fulfilling our role in the cultural mandate. Yes, we must share the gospel. Yes, salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, we are called to engage the culture and influence the culture for God's glory and for the extending of His kingdom. We are called to that in the cultural mandate. Bob? I agree Yeah. And so they don't have to that's why winning the souls, you know, saying magical prayers, dunking them in the water and nothing else. And that's why yeah. culture is what it is. We have a lot of small seed Christians coming around with nothing. Yeah, absolutely. We we lack the discipleship. We do. We can share the gospel and we can see the Lord save people. You know, but honestly, that's the easy part. That's the easy part to go and to share the gospel. Now, I say it's easy, and I don't always do it, and I don't always do it well, and I confess that. But the reality is, because all we have to do is share, and God does the saving. It's not like we got to convince them. 
oh yeah, you need to do this, you need to do this, or we shame them or we guilt them or whatever it is. Man, we just share the gospel. The Holy Spirit moves and draws them and saves them. Hey, the, the hard part is going out and discipling people. It's getting involved in people's lives. It's involved in the culture. It's involved with the schools. It's involved with the work. Man, that's where things get messy. That's where things get messy. That's where things get hard. Man, if you spend any time discipling people, you know that what I'm getting ready to say is true. That's messy business. Man, I don't know how many people that I've discipled, and then it's just like, as we go on, and it's like, man, I, I just need to tell you this, man, man, I am, I am all into pornography. Okay, thanks for sharing that. Let's take a break from what we're learning, and let's take, you know, and so now we have to stop, and now we've got to deal with this issue. All right? Now we've got to deal with that. Or it's alcohol or drugs, or sex outside of marriage. It's, okay, well, let's stop. Let's deal with this. What does God's word say? And now we got to, that's messy business and it takes time. And it's hard. But that's, hang on a second, Bob. But that's what God has called us to. That's being faithful with what the Lord has put before us today. Bob. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, many people will die for Jesus. It's, it's hard to live for him. But the reality is, is if you're not living it out, you're not being a disciple. I mean, disciple's not just knowledge. It's practice. Orthopraxy, orthodoxy, orthopraxy. It, it's all wrapped in. It all comes together with the package. So Christianity and human rights, let's look at that. All right, here we go. What are human rights? What are human rights? And then here's the next thing. Where do human rights come from? Take about five minutes and discuss, one, what are human rights and where do human rights come from? Take about five minutes and have that discussion amongst yourself. Okay. Let's bring it back in to the big group. <clears throat> So what did we, what are human rights? What did we come up with as far as what are human rights? Yeah. I'm sorry, say the last part again. Rights that you have by being, virtue of by being a human. Okay, because you're a human, you have certain human rights. Okay. Anything else? Can answer first without answering the second. Step appropriately. The beginning of the come from God and begin at conception. Yeah. And that's what defines Well, yeah, and I think that's, yeah, what we get to, because, I mean, your response is a great response. The issue with that, it doesn't really tell us 
what those rights are, right? And then we got to begin to break that down. Well, I mean, what the pursuit of life, liberty, happiness. I mean, so then we can begin to break those things down and say, oh, okay, I, I understand that. It, 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 brings, it brings some structure to that. It puts some meat on the bones and say, oh, right to life. Well, and that's, that becomes the next question is, is where do they come from, right? And so hopefully for us, that's an easy thing, right? Because we're image bearers of God, we have those rights come from being image bearers of God. But the challenge really becomes that if you don't believe in God or that we're image bearers, then where do those rights come from? Henry? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we talk about societal norms. And man, and that plays well in academia. Oh, well, it's just it's societal norms. And again, that plays well until we start to flesh that out. Right? Here you go, Ken. You're gonna be impressed. You're gonna be impressed. Right? Because in some societies, there's a thing called honor killing. Right? If your child shames your name or your faith, if you're disobedient, then you can be put to death just by the words of the father. Right? The example we were just listening to on Sunday was the father told the son, you know what, because the daughter did not want the arranged marriage. And he said, you know what, go kill your sister. It's called an honor killing. And in their society, as a societal norm, that's okay. That's okay. And so now if we turn around and say, well, you know what? All societies are equal. All societies are equal. Well, we don't, again, it sounds nice to say that. And one of these honor killings happened. This was probably 10, 15 years ago. Uh, daughter living in Arizona, shamed the family, the father shows up and kills the daughter. They had the nerve to arrest this man and put him on trial. In his society, that was the norm. In his culture, that was the norm. And if we really believe that all cultures, all societies are the same, there's not one better than the other, how do we respond? We certainly shouldn't be prosecuting that man if we really believe that. Right? Well, yeah, and so it happens, and so you have these clash of the cultures, and then the societal norm fails. The societal norm as a definition fails for what is a human right. And we really do believe that some cultures are better than others, Right? A culture that eats their people, clearly we think is not on the same footing of a culture that grows their people. 
right? Cannibalism is really not that favored of an idea. So we, we really don't believe that all cultures are the same or they're at least equal in their norms. They just think differently than we, or they eat differently than we do. No, it's so much more than that. And because once we have to figure out is where to, so if it's just a social contract theory that we get our rights from, again, that can change as society ebbs and flows. But more likely than not, our rights would come from the government. And when the government changes, our rights change. And you just have that perpetuating change of human rights that you don't even really know what the human rights are or what really gets cloudy is what does it mean to be a human? What does it even mean to be human gets lost in the cloud of societal norms or government mandates. But until we get to Genesis 1, 26 through 27, right? If God gives us those rights as image bearers of God, I didn't put this up there, I apologize, but it's, it says, then God said, and you're familiar with it, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is where our human rights come from. Our human rights come from the creator who created us. We are made in His image. And so regardless of what society you're in, you're an image bearer of God. Hang on a second. You're an image bearer of God. You have those attributes, many of the attributes that God has because we are His created being. Everybody has it. So whether you're a, a tribe down in, in the Amazon or you're living in Chicago, or you're living in Memphis, or wherever you're at, everybody has those human rights because we're all image bearers of God. That's always going to be unchanging because the God that created us is unchanging. Anything other than that is really not a human right. It's just smoke and mirrors. That's all it becomes. Bob? Mm -hmm. So we are the only creatures that are made in God's image and thereby assigning eternal value to each human soul. Yep. Thereby abortion, euthanasia, and addresses a lot of societal issues. Yep. Once we remove that, that's where we have all the ills come in. And, you know. Yeah. You know, again, that's where you, you've got to rely upon something else. And ultimately, it's whatever humanity government society comes up with again I, I think i've told the story i was i was teaching in a seminary down in in uh, honduras and a young lady very bright very articulate she was studying to be a lawyer she wanted to be a human rights lawyer and so i had asked her wow and she was an atheist because we we'd had a conversation she was an atheist and i said so where do human rights come from and there was just that silence well, they come from, she didn't say societal norms, but it was really social constructs. Well, you know, society agrees on what those are. And I said, but what happens if the society changes that? Then where do they come from? And then what happens when two societies differ on that and what should be the societal norm? Who's going to alleviate that? And then ultimately she went to the government. 
And if you know anything about the Honduras government, it changes quite frequently. Their constitution has probably been changed over 50 times. And it's only been around since the early 70s. Just all kinds of changes. And I'm like, and that made her uncomfortable because she knows the problem with the government. She's going to be a human rights lawyer, but she had never thought that far about it because it's just cliches and academic talking points. Image bearers of God. When we get to that, everybody has intrinsic value and worth. Everybody. I don't care your color. I don't care your age. I don't care your physical ability. You have intrinsic value and worth because you're made in the image of God by his design for his purpose. So again, we talked about that, wore that out, Exodus. And so now we get into Christianity. Oh, this is Exodus. And he said, uh, the Old Testament law instructed that Israel, that they were to treat people fairly. They were to judge them and uphold them. They were to do right by the people. They were not to oppress them, right? Because those that were usually oppressed within any culture, and we can talk about our culture today, those that usually get depressed are those who are socially or economically on a lower status, which are normally women, slaves, and children, certainly within the Old Testament culture, right? In Exodus 23, 6 through 9, it's talking about this. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I, not, I will not acquit, acquit the guilty. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. And again, this is the Old Testament law about how Israel was supposed to act. All right? Now, did Israel always act that way? Clearly they did not. Clearly, that's not against God, right? That's against the fallen nature of humanity. But that's not a mark against God, right? And so now we want to talk about Christianity and the abolition of slavery, right? Big topic. It covers a lot of ground. It covers a lot of years. But, right, slavery has existed throughout history. It has since the depravity of humanity, slavery has existed, and it still exists today in some shape or form. Still today. An act of slavery is a denial of the humanity of an image bearer of God. When we turn around and we put somebody in bondage, we are literally denying them their humanity as an image bearer of God those intrinsic rights and values that we get because we are created in God's, we have, we have denied that. We have ripped that from them. We are denying not just their image bearer, but the one who made them. That's what's taking place. So now, right, I've heard this. I don't know whether you've heard it or not. I've had people ask me, well, you know, the Bible condones slavery. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. All right? So the Old Testament and slavery. Right? The Hebrew people were slaves themselves, and they had slaves. They spent 400 years in bondage in, in Egypt. Right? They understood what it was to be a slave. Yet, the treatment of, of slaves for them within their culture was vastly different than the surrounding nations. Right? Mosaic law did not affirm slavery. Right? It didn't say, oh yeah, 
go and do this. This is a good thing. It didn't affirm it. But neither did it end it. Neither did it end it. it did, but it did set standards for how slaves were, were to be treated. It did set standards. So now, the Hebrews could sell themselves. If you're Hebrew, you could sell yourself into slavery to another Hebrew, right? Exodus 21.2 talks about this, right? This servitude could not last longer than six years, and you were released at the seventh year. And what you would, it's because you owed a debt, you owed a debt to somebody. You couldn't pay that debt back. And so you would sell yourself into slavery, into servitude, until that debt could be paid back. Whether the debt was paid back or not, at the end of six years, you were set free from that debt. You no longer owed that debt. Okay? It's like an indentured servitude. Um, and then we've got these verses here, and they just reveal the standard requirements in this form of slavery. So and then you have Hebrews with the Gentile slaves. Right? When the Hebrews conquered Canaan, they were supposed to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land, yet they disobeyed God. They did not drive them out. So in Leviticus 25, it, God allowed them to take slaves from the Canaanites. So you have a battle, you have a war, they didn't drive them out, and so he, he said, okay, you can take slaves in, but they're still governed by those laws. When we look at slaves outside of the nation of Israel, man, they were treated less than human. They were not even human. They were clearly just objects of which at my beck and call. So within Israel, we have this elevation of, of the Old Testament of even the slaves that did exist, whether it's a servitude or whether it's through war. We have this. God's law did not allow the kind of treatment that required the right of slaves that were unheard of anywhere else. God's law did not allow that kind of treatment, just inhumane treatment of slaves. Um, Right? And these were some of the, these were some of the laws of how they were to treat the slaves. Slaves had a right to keep their wife. They had a right not to be sold to foreigners. They had a right to be adopted into a family by marriage. They had rights to food and clothing. You know, and I think about Abraham, right? He had a slave. He had a servant, right? And he's getting old in age, and he's talking. He says, man, a servant, he's going to get it all. He gets all that I own. That's not a slave. That's a family member. Right? That's how we treated it. Now again, did Israel always live? By, they did not. They did not always live this out. Right? So let's look at New Testament and slavery. Right? The emancipation, the emancipation of slaves was not demanded in the New Testament. It was not demanded. Right? The apostles did give instructions to slave and owners. The masters were required to teach their slaves well. And so here's the question. Is why didn't the New Testament church just demand that Rome end slavery? Or even, with, even within the church, right? You've got Onesimus, right? Which is what some of this is dealing with. And he ran away from his, his master, 
right? Paul didn't demand, hey, you know what? You need to set him free. Why not? That's the question. Money. Money. Okay. Any other reasons? Thoughts? Okay, well, this is a new church, right? The church is just being birthed here. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the culture is literally driving this. The culture is driving this as far as the ability of what the church had and what the church was called to do. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so the culture drove that, and uh, that is, they probably viewed that as a job. You want a job, you know, here's a job in exchange for your service, so it's like getting a job. But the treatment was absolutely different. It was demanded that they be treated differently, like you said. Yeah. And that's what Paul requires <clears throat> that you treat them as one of your own. Because here's. Think about this. How many came to know Christ at a later? I was 24 years old. Anybody not a child when they came to know Christ? So we got to, we got just a, wow. One of us is weird, okay? No. You know what? When I got saved, God didn't say, okay, you know all that, that crazy stuff you're doing? You need to stop today. He didn't demand that I stop the drinking and all of the other brokenness that was in my life. He didn't demand that I stopped it today. He changed my heart to those things. And what we see with Paul and the New Testament, what we're going to see further on as we move on is, man, the church was changing hearts on these issues. Right? We can change the law until the law gets changed again. Right? So the law is only as good as long as the government allows it to stand. But when we change the heart, we change the life. And the church is changing the heart to change the life, to change the culture. Because again, a law doesn't change the culture. Right? Law's not bad. I mean, it could keep somebody from murdering me, which is it's a good thing, I think. Right? but it's not necessarily going to work all the time. Change the heart. And we see that the church is changing the heart. God doesn't call us to be holy from the first minute that we give our lives to Christ and don't mess up. Don't mess up. Man, it's a process. The danger that we make is, is we take our current culture and we put it on all of the other past cultures and say, they should be like us. They should be like us. It's called chronological snobbery. Right? We've got it all figured out. I'm looking around us. I'm thinking we don't really have it all figured out. I'm just guessing. All right? Okay. So we got this. This is from, um, this will be a recap of kind of what we were doing. This is from, um, what would you say? 
from Breakpoint Ministries, and it'll be about five minutes. And we're going to have to fly through some stuff. You're in a conversation, and someone says, the Bible is evil because it endorses slavery. What would you say? Now, it's true that the Bible, in both the Old and New Testaments, talks about slavery. But does this mean the slave trade, that's such a shameful part of our history, is actually something the Bible supports? No. And here are three reasons why. First, the slavery talked about in the Bible was more like servitude. When we hear the word slavery, we usually think of slave ships carrying Africans away from their home to be bought and sold as the property of white people in other parts of the world. But the Hebrew word, sometimes translated as slavery in the Bible, refers to something very different. Now, before the development of modern economies that led to the kind of wealth we see today, and governments capable of offering large welfare systems, cultures develop ways to deal with the problem of poverty. And because in Old Testament times, there was no such thing as a government assistance program, people would often sell themselves to have the basic necessities of food and shelter. Slavery, in this sense, was a type of social safety net. Slavery was also a way to deal with bankruptcy. Those who could not repay a debt would sell themselves to repay it. But this kind of slavery was usually not for life unless one voluntarily did so. In the Jewish law, servitude would last six years. The slaves would be freed in the seventh year. And every 50 years, in what was called the year of Jubilee, all debts were wiped out. It is undoubtedly true that some slaves were treated terribly. But that's not because the Bible encouraged it or even permitted it. Though many nations at that time would take slaves after war, Israel was not permitted to do so. Second, slaves were to be treated as people, not property. Because Israelite servitude was not rooted in racism or even classism, servants had legal protections in Israel. If a master, more like an employer, permanently injured a servant, the servant would be set free without any debt. And to strike and kill a servant meant capital punishment. Israel was also commanded to harbor runaway slaves from surrounding nations where they might be treated cruelly. To harbor runaway slaves in other countries often meant the death penalty. In Exodus, the Bible demands the death penalty for slave traders. Roman slavery, in the context of the New Testament era, was a different system. Roman slaves who were taken in battle were still allowed to marry, have families, purchase their freedom, and have others purchase their freedom. The New Testament, like the Old Testament, recognizes the humanity of every person, regardless of their station in life. The Apostle Paul even considered Roman slaves to be co-workers in his ministry. And because slavery was a common part of the culture in which Christianity was birthed, first century Christians were both slaves and slave owners. Christian masters and slaves were instructed to engage in activities like eating meals and then the Lord's Supper together. That would undermine and subvert slavery. New Testament writers used the language of family intimacy, such as greet one another with a holy kiss. Thus, in dozens of places, the New Testament is clear that our value as human beings, slave or free, is the same. In this way, 
Christianity planted the seeds that would ultimately lead to the undermining of both ancient Roman slavery as well as modern slavery. And this leads to the final point. Christians ended the slave trade. The Christianization of Europe eventually led to the disappearance of slavery until its modern form emerged in the 15th century. And then it was a Christian, William Wilberforce, who led the effort to eliminate the slave trade in England. It was Christian abolitionist preachers during the Second Great Awakening of the early 19th century that started the sustained effort to abolish slavery in the United States. It was a Christian pastor, Martin Luther King Jr., who led the civil rights movement of the 20th century in the United States. This followed a long history of Christians working for human rights because of the gospel's commitment to the equal dignity of every person. The history of slavery is a difficult and important conversation. But the next time someone tries to suggest that the Bible endorses slavery, remember these three things. Number one, the slavery talked about in the Bible was more like servitude. Number two, slaves were to be treated as people, not property. Number three, Christians ended the slave trade. So again, so that'll be quick. We can run through some of these notes pretty quick on this, this abolition of slavery, right? It is true that Christians who owned, there were Christians who owned slaves and others who did not call for the emancipation of slaves. We saw this with Augustine, one of the early church fathers. Man, he probably wasn't one of the early church, probably one of the mids. Uh, but he thought slavery resulted from sin and should be tolerated as such, right? John Christome, he saw slavery as a sin but did not call for its abolition, Origin, he wanted to return to the Old Testament laws and slaves should be released after six years. So again, we, we have Christians in the past, right? And they did not call for the abolition of the emancipation of slaves. Should they? That remains to be debated and seen during their culture. This is, so we know that those things, right? It's not right. I mean, we can say that. But whenever the abolition of slavery was fought for, Christianity was always the driving force behind it. Always. Right? Early church leaders went against, went against the Roman culture. They promoted slaves to high offices. That's what it was talking about in there. Onesimus, that Paul was talking about, he became the bishop of Ephesus. He became the bishop of Ephesus. And there's records that show many Christians purchased slaves and then set them free. One such was St. Eligius. He purchased British slaves in lots of 50 and 100, and then he set them free. Then he set them free. Of course, it talked about William Wilberforce. And then there's American abolitionists. Again, we talk about the colonial, the slave owners. Again, atrocity after atrocity after atrocity that could be attributed to them. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Right? Elijah Lovejoy, he's a clergyman. He published articles against slavery. Edward Beecher, he's a clergyman. He's a college president. He enrolled black students in his college. Arthur Tappan, he's a wealthy businessman. He funded Lane Seminary that opposed slavery. Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was an anti-slavery novel. You have Charles Torrey. He was also a clergyman. John Hersey was a clergyman and an author. Uh, John Fee, again, clergyman. William Garrison, he was a publisher. 
James Burney. He was a former slave owner. Julie, Julia Ward Howe, she was a social activist, wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic, worked against these. Abolition of slavery and the rejection of racial segregation have their roots in the earliest Christian teachings. Again, we want to judge a system. We don't judge a system by the atrocities that people commit in it, but by the tenets of that system. In other words, what does the system propose? What does Christianity tell us how we're to live? That's how we judge a system. We can judge an individual by the actions that we do, and we should, right? Scripture tells us that. Am I living out my faith as Christ called me to live out my faith? If I'm not, you have a right to judge me on that. You have a right to call me out on that. Scripture is clear on that. So then we move into Christianity and women's and children's rights, which uh, we have Christianity has done more for women's rights than any other movement in the history. And again, you'll just hear that, man, Christianity, it's just a misogynistic, right, patriarchal system that's there to keep everybody down except for those that are in power. And that's, that's clearly, it's not true. That's not what Scripture teaches, and that's not what we see with followers of Christ. Right, ancient Rome and women. Man, the families typically kept the boys and one, the oldest or the healthiest girl. After that, they dealt with them by exposure. In other words, the baby was born and they would just put the baby out in the street, out in the wilderness, just to be exposed to the elements and die. I've talked about this. It was the Christians that would come along and find those babies and take them in as their own and raise them. It was the Christians that were doing that. Right? Women and girls were not even treated as second-class citizens in Rome. Right? Greek women? Man, ancient Greece is often presented as a very forward-thinking or progressive culture. People will hold that up as, the, oh, yeah, the Greeks, they, the Greeks, they had it going. No, they did not. The Athenian women were not allowed to leave their house without a male escort. When husband has male guests in the house, the wife was not permitted to eat or interact with them. She just had to go off into her own room. The Greek wife had virtually no freedom or social status. Basically, was considered a slave. The wife could not divorce her husband, but the man could divorce her at any time. Hebrew women. The Hebrew culture was biased towards women as the Greeks and the Romans were. We're going to move on. This is a good one. Is the Bible sex is Christ and women again? This is at the what would you say dot um, org website. They've got tons of great videos there. Time's not going to permit us to work through this. Um, Christianity and education. Right, failing to educate even one generation can set a nation's progress back one hundred years. There you go. Man, I cannot even think about what we're doing to the education of our children in this generation. I cannot even begin the problems. And we're already seeing them because we're failing to educate our children. We're failing to educate our children as a society. Christians have always valued the life of the mind, right? Mark 12, 30 through 31, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Right? We often leave that part out. Wherever Christians have gone, schools have followed Missionaries, schools soon. They soon open up schools. Right? The Great Commission. Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations. Teaching them. Teaching them. It's always been a part of the Christian mission. Christianity appears to be the first belief that's educated the females along with the males. 
Right? If they get educated at all, the females, it was separate. And it was usually only up to a certain age or point. Not with Christianity. Christians led the way for education for the deaf, the blind, and the financially underprivileged. It was Christians who were starting these schools. Many of our first American colleges were started by Christians as seminaries. Yale, Harvard, Columbia. These are all bastions of liberalism that are just completely morally bankrupt. They started out as seminaries to train pastors. Long way from that today. And then we look at Christianity and modern medicine. All right, Jesus and the apostles, they performed miracles. Right? That was a big part of what they were doing. So you have healing. The early church saw mercy works of mercy and preaching of the gospel as two sides of the same coin. We meet the need, we share the gospel. Right? The first major epidemic that we find out about, it was the early church, it was in Rome, 166 to 189. Man, the Roman citizens would cast the sick out onto the street and the doctors were fleeing the city because they didn't want to get sick and die. It was the Christians who were stepping in and taking care of the sick, even if it cost them their life. And we see that epidemic after epidemic through history. It was the Christians that were running to help those who were sick. Just real quick, you know what? It's never the atheists. It's never the agnostics. It's it's never them. It's Christians. It was the Christians who founded the first hospitals in history. They started leprosy hospitals. Uh, As in education, wherever Christians showed up, hospitals were soon started. Man, they're changing their culture. One education at a time, one hospital at a time. They're changing their culture. Because Christ has given them the cultural mandate. And then there's Christianity and modern science. Remember the one that was up there? Man, Christianity set science back 1,500 years. And you're like, seriously? Right? Modern science came about because of the outworking of the Christian faith. Right? Early scientists believed that studying the material world would point directly to God. The more we study creation, the more we're going to see God of creation. Man, that is just awesome. That was the motivation for studying creation, for studying the material world, right? This guy, Rodney Stark, sociologist, he said, of the 52 active scientists who made the most significant contributions during the scientific revolution, again, that's back in the 1800s, the time of enlightenment, um, only one was an atheist. More than 60% of them were devout Christians. Only one atheist was in that scientific revolution group. So some famous Christian scientists, Francis Bacon, Nicholas Copernicus, Johannes Kepler, uh, right? He, he said the scientific inquiry is the process of thinking God's thoughts after him. I love that. It's thinking God's thoughts after him. Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, who was the father of modern chemistry, Francis Collin, he's the current guy. He was the head of the Human Genome Project. They mapped the human genome. This guy did. He's a Christian. He's a Christian, Right? And so for us, we are to be equipped to engage the culture with the cause of Christ and to further his kingdom wherever your feet take you. The cultural mandate is before us. 
Will we be faithful with what God has put before us today? Questions, problems, concerns? I know I went over a little bit. I apologize for that. Henry? Oh, is the Bible? Oh, it's whatwouldyousay.org. And again, man, they've got tons of videos there. They're awesome. Uh, Five-minute videos, they always give you just three points. They're always easy to remember, but it's whatwouldyousay.org. Yes? Uh-huh. Yeah. Amen. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I tell you, there is uh, a couple books. One, How Christianity Changed the World. It's a great book that's out there. Uh, we sell it at the bookstore. And then there's this one here. Actually, this is Modern Day Stories. It's uh, Restoring All Things, where we see, man, these are people that started ministries to help. I mean, they're incredible stories. Man, if you just need a book of encouragement, I get this book. It's awesome. Um, so if there's no other questions, let me close this in prayer. Blessed Father, Lord, we thank you that you, you called us to be a part of your work. Uh, Lord, you don't need us, but we need you. And Lord, we want to be found faithful with what you put before us today. Lord, I pray that you'd convict us where we, where we do wrong, where we sin against you. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage us to walk in your ways, that you will be behind us, whispering in our ears to tell us to go to the left or to the right. Uh, Lord, may we be kind and loving. May we speak truth in love wherever we go, Lord. I pray that you give each person here favor wherever your, their feet take them, Lord, and that they would have these opportunities to speak your truth in love, to share your ideas with the world, Lord, that they would go and engage the culture and influence it for your good ways, Lord Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we ask these things. Amen.